0: Hey, this is Rob Harder with Making Your World Better, a nonprofit leadership show where real stories from real people who are coming up with real solutions to solve society's biggest challenges. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? How do people fundraise in an economy that is constantly in flux? How do you relate to board members in a way that inspires them to make a difference? What are the best practices that separate effective nonprofits from others? It is my hope that through these episodes, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear real stories from real leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy this series as together, we hear how they're making their world better. Diversity and inclusion are buzzwords today in both the for-profit and non-profit worlds. But what exactly do these two words mean when it comes to your organization? And how can you become even more inclusive and equitable in your leadership? Well, author and researcher Paolo Gaudiano is my guest today, and he will address these topics. He's the CEO at ARC, Alaria Research Corporation, and is a speaker, writer, and teacher. Alaria Research Corporation is a nonprofit that conducts scientific, charitable research related to diversity and inclusion. And today we're going to discuss how your nonprofit organization can become even more inclusive and equitable as an organization using the three-pronged approach Paolo and Alaria takes when it comes to diversity and inclusion. Enjoy today's show. Well, Paolo, it's so good to have you on the show today. You have a combined 30 years of experience in academic and entrepreneurial experience. And with your latest venture, you call ARC, or Alaria Research Corporation, your overarching goals to make the world a more inclusive and more equitable place. So first of all, just define what inclusive and equitable means to you and describe what this looks like in the workplace.
1: Yes, and thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Uh, What we mean by inclusive and equitable especially as it relates to the workplace, is understanding that ultimately for every company, and really more broadly for any kind of an organization, you need to make sure that the people within the organization are able to perform at their best, and that there's nothing about their personal characteristics that interfere with their ability to contribute. Because the moment that anyone within your organization is unable to do that, then you're potentially hurting yourself. And in particular, we have developed what uh, we call the four pillars of performance, which is a framework to help us understand how are the different ways in which diversity and inclusion impact the performance of an organization. And the key is that essentially every organization pretty much uh, needs four ingredients to be successful. First, you need to be able to attract talent. And then secondly, you need to be able to use that talent efficiently within your operations. Third, you need to be able to retain that talent that you work so hard to get. And then fourth, for most organizations, you also need to concern yourself with clients. So you need to be able to have what we call market appeal, which is the ability to attract customers who want your services, your offerings, your products, and so on. And one of the keys about what we do is understanding that diversity and inclusion impact all four of these at the same time. We don't have the luxury of asking ourselves how diversity and inclusion impact only one of these, like sales, because the fact is that anything that you do that has to do with diversity inclusion impacts all four of them. And I can give you some examples of that later in the conversation.
0: What's so important you're doing this, and I know it's ironic for me personally, even I'm in Park City, Utah, and I'm part of the social equity task force that the city and several nonprofits have put together to address these very issues. And so I think it's very relevant. It's very important. Um, And so now the next question. In your work, I understand you take a quantitative human-centric approach to inclusion and diversity. And the way I understand that is that it's a relatively new methodology that combines behavioral sciences and computer simulations to gain a better understanding of how inclusion and diversity. impact the happiness and even satisfaction of individuals uh, not to mention the overall performance of their organizations so share about that a little bit Uh, some of the projects that you're working on right now talk about that a bit
1: I'd be happy to do that and uh, very briefly what we do is we work in a field that has its roots in a space called uh, complexity science that is now several decades old that came out of social sciences with the hope of understanding how societies and eventually organizations behave And what's unique about it is the fact that we combine behavioral sciences to understand how people behave and how they respond to what happens to them, their environment, and their interactions with people. Then we use computer simulations that capture day-to-day activities and interactions to understand how the organization as a whole behaves. And it's that ability to maintain the details about the individual humans and yet capture the behavior of the organization that is so powerful. And in terms of specific projects I can tell you one project that we're working with a uh, non-profit society in the financial services space. They work with large financial services corporations, and they were interested in understanding the question of what inclusion is, and more importantly, how do you measure it, and how do you understand the impact of inclusion on the retention of women in financial services. And in that case, what we did is to work with several of these financial services organizations that were first, And we developed a survey that was really based on asking the question of what are the kinds of things that happen to women uniquely within the financial services space that represent a lack of inclusion? So specifically, what are the kinds of things that might include being passed over for promotions or potentially not having the flex time that they need to take care of their children and so on and so forth? And this is very important because it retains – our ability to understand what is going on at the level of individuals, but then we can take data and help these companies understand on a macroscopic level what is happening and how they can make changes that will impact the satisfaction of these women and potentially their retention while helping them to be more productive and therefore make more money for the company. And, and then in a very different space to show the flexibility of the approach, we have a project that we're working on with the, actually two projects, with the Kauffman Foundation. Both of them have to do with entrepreneurship and understanding how we can help to make entrepreneurship a more equitable field. It turns out that if you look at the data, you'll find that entrepreneurship has been actually declining over time and more importantly, it has become an increasingly privileged activity. And a lot of people that come from underrepresented groups have a very hard time getting into entrepreneurship. But what we're doing is we are using our same methodology and really digging into what happens in the typical life of an entrepreneur, both in terms of what they're doing as they're building a company and then in terms of how they may relate to different kinds of investors in order to get capital to support their activities. And using the same methodology, we're able to help the foundation understand what are some of the key factors that influence entrepreneurship, and more importantly, how can we help to level off the playing field the different groups will have equal opportunities to participate.
0: That's very interesting. Um, And, you know, uh, in the introduction today to today's episode, I mentioned that you use a three-pronged approach to address the issues of diversity and inclusion. And that is an approach that combines a nonprofit research entity on the one hand, a for-profit software startup, and an academic research center. I mean, there's a lot of different elements coming together. Um, And it seems like that you found that these three approaches have complementary strengths. So let's talk about that, because I think it's pretty impressive to do this three-pronged approach Uh, Tell us more about what you've found so far with this approach. This is one of the things that you miss out in a
1: podcast is that you don't see the color of my hair, which is very gray, (laughs) and that's indicative of the three decades or so of work that I've been doing across a variety of spaces. I started out in academia, then I became an entrepreneur, and I did a lot of work for government agencies, for nonprofits, for corporations. So when I began to work in the diversity and inclusion space almost four years ago, I I started with the idea of creating a software company. And our goal there is to help corporations figure out how to use diversity and inclusion to have happier employees and effectively make more money and be more successful. And then we realized that because it's such a new approach, there was a need for core research. And I was uh, very fortunate to team up with uh, Gilda Barabino, who's the dean of the engineering school at the City College of New York, She has dedicated much of her life to increasing diversity and inclusion in academia. She herself is an engineer and the dean of the School of Engineering. And we teamed up to create a research lab that we called Quantitative Studies of Diversity and Inclusion, where we're basically doing the core academic work that is related to what we do at the for-profit corporation, but really with a much deeper research focus. And then finally, again, based on the experience that I've had in the past, uh, for a number of reasons, we decided that it was... Appropriate to also create a nonprofit. And the nonprofit that's called Aleria Research Corporation, or ARC in brief, is really meant to do two things that the other entities cannot do. First, it can do more applied research than a typical academic center. However, it's more applied, but it's still charitable in nature, which means that it's something that will benefit society as a whole and that can be published broadly. But secondly, it gives us the ability to do research projects that would be a little bit too distracting for the startup company, meaning that, for example, uh, some of the projects that I described with the Cosma Foundation, they're great to help entrepreneurs, but they don't really help us in terms of serving the corporate clients. And so we're able to shift those project to the nonprofit, and we're able to use the same basic technology and science to solve these problems, but we do it without distracting the goal of the software company. So really there are these very nice complementarities where – in the software company, we can do very focused work for corporate clients, but we don't have—we wouldn't have, I should say—the credibility of an academic center or of a nonprofit. The nonprofit doesn't quite have the credibility of an academic research center, and it can't really do commercial-grade software. But it has the advantage of being able to help foundations and other entities that only work with nonprofits. And then finally, the Academic Research Center gives us both the credibility and and also the ability to dive into some of these really key difficult problems that will be beyond the scope of both the nonprofit and the software company.
0: Hey everybody, Rob here. Thanks so much for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Show. If this is your first time listening to us, I wanted to make sure you were aware of a whole group of other interviews with fascinating guests that I've previously interviewed. Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org, and there you'll find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country, even from different countries, all trying to make their world better. I think you'll really enjoy those interviews. I also want to make sure you knew about a new feature. Um, We want to give you more content, and we'd like to get that information to you. And all you have to do is give us your email. When you go to that website, you can put your email address in that first box you'll see on the front page, and you'll be added to our monthly email update. In addition to some great content, you'll see the latest Uh, podcast shows it will be actually sent right to your inbox. And that way you'll never miss any of the great content on this show. The other thing I'll mention to you is if you have questions or comments or you'd like to be on the show, do not hesitate to email me. I'd love to hear from you. Just do that through our website, my email, rob at ccofpc.org. Well, thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. Well, I think your approach is very unique, and the fact that you've combined three different approaches lends more credibility to your research, honestly, in my opinion, anyway. So far, with the data you have collected, what have been the biggest surprises to you? I would say there have been two things.
1: One is really more a conceptual issue that we found that was very surprising, and the other one is more of a practical issue. On the conceptual side, even though everybody talks about diversity and inclusion, and, and we do too, because that seems to be the label that people like to use. What we've come to realize is that, really, inclusion is what matters. And diversity is really the outcome. What I mean by that is, when you talk about diversity, you're really talking about measuring personal characteristics of people within an organization. Are you black, are you white, are you Asian, are you gay, are you a lesbian, and so on and so forth. But really, what matters is not that. That's really an outcome. What matters is inclusion, meaning, what is it that you're doing as a company or as an organization that treats people differentially based on these personal characteristics. And that's critical because ultimately we believe that when companies try to influence inclusion directly, it's much more powerful than trying to influence diversity. So let me give you an example. Let's say that a typical software company in the Silicon Valley or technology company decides that they want to become more diverse. What do they do? They go out and they go to HBCUs, you know, Historically Black Colleges and Universities, they find some computer science graduates and hire them. Well, these kids may come in day one, and they may see that their manager does not know how to work with them, The leadership looks nothing like them, and then when they go to the cafeteria, people may get up and move away from them. The result, well, they're going to leave after a few months, and then that's going to have a negative impact on the operations, because now you have to hire new people. It's going to have an impact clearly on retention, but it's also going to have a negative impact on reputation, which means that it will be even harder for the company to hire more people from that segment, and it could potentially have repercussion on the sales side. So it's really dangerous to focus on diversity, and one of the analogies I love to give with people is trying to fix diversity directly is a bit like saying, honey, my house is really cold, look, the thermostat reads 50 degrees. Oh, I'm gonna fix it by lighting a match under the thermostat. Well, <laughs> it's gonna make the temperature go off on the thermostat. But in the meantime, if your windows are open and your roof is leaking, you're not really solving the problem. And I think that's really the most fundamental surprise that we've seen is the fact that really people mistake diversity as something that you can change, but really you need to do it indirectly by becoming a more inclusive organization.
0: That's really interesting. Uh, Well, now for my listeners who are either on staff at a nonprofit organization are board members or perhaps volunteers, you know, they're always interested in their return on investment, right? So whether they change their structure or add more education or they send their staff to additional training, what's their return on investment for dedicating so much time focusing on equity and inclusivity? I would say that for, especially for nonprofits, there are two very different aspects
1: of the diversity and inclusion and equity discussion that need to be taken into account. One of them is about internal and one of them is about external. Let me begin with external. Most organizations, well I shouldn't say most, but a lot of these organizations have a focus that ultimately impacts the population. And so to the extent that their programs are designed properly and that they take into account the diversity issues and the unique issues of the different populations that they serve, then that can have a profound impact on their ability to be successful in their missions. On the internal side, it has to do with how their own people feel like they're treated. I've spoken with large, very large nonprofits that get to the point where once you have more than a handful of people, you're dealing with exactly the same kinds of issues that corporation may be dealing with. And in the nonprofit you have the unique fact that these are tied together. If you remember earlier when I talked about the notion of market appeal, well here the way that this Connection manifests itself is that the diversity of your team within a nonprofit is not only going to impact how successful your team is internally in, in its ability to operate, but it's also clearly going to impact the quality of the programs and therefore it's going to impact the external side of diversity and inclusion based on the populations that you're trying to target. So, my recommendation would be that in a way, the nonprofit should think the same way as a for profit corporation in that if they can make the strides to become more inclusive. In so doing, they're going to increase their
0: returns by having happier employees and, in this particular case, having more successful programs. This is great research you're sharing with us today. Um, now, perhaps as a way to provide some practical next steps. For my listeners who have recognized that they need to become more inclusive and diverse at their organization, what advice do you have for them to implement today? If you're being hired by them as a consultant, for example, what would you say to them are the most important first, second, or even third step for them to take today? There are several things that people can do. I
1: think that, for one thing, in most organizations, there needs to be a true belief from the leadership that this is something that is worth pursuing. And from that perspective, I think that one of the reasons why we created these organizations is because you can be a believer in diversity and inclusion, as I am, and in the value of that, But there are a lot of people that need to see something tangible. They need to see how it's going to impact their operations. So I think step number one is educate yourself about what are the various ways in which inclusion and diversity can actually make you more successful. But then there is a lot that people can do at the individual level. And I find that in many cases, the problem that people encounter is due to a lack of familiarity. It's that discomfort that is very natural for human beings that when you encounter someone that is different from you whether it 's because of a physical disability, whether it's because of a uh, you know some kind of a visible trait, whether it's skin color or you know potentially somebody that is a, a little person, all of these are situations in which our reactions tend to be naturally a little bit challenged. so the best way to get over that is to just expose yourself to situations in your personal life that make you more comfortable and that's something that can be also done systematically within an organization so there are many consultants out there that can gladly come and give you advice about how to work with people with disabilities, how to work with people from different cultures. And then on the individual level, one of the things that I always tell people is look through your social networks, not just in terms of the online social networks, but also your personal networks. What do the people look like at the parties that you go to? What do your friends look like? And sometimes making an effort to reach out invite people that maybe you're not as familiar with, whether you're doing this through work or through your home, and also, in fact, you should check your social networks. I invite most people to look, for example, at their Twitter and LinkedIn accounts. You may be surprised to see that even for women, you find, for example, that a lot of people tend to follow more men than women. So those are little things that we can all do as individuals, and then as organizations, I would say, educate yourself, rely on people that are experienced, make sure that you get help, and don't be afraid to take that first step. It can be really intimidating because there's always the concern of backlash. But if you do it with the right mindset and with your heart in the right place, people are understanding and they will help you.
0: This has been great. Thank you so much for sharing all of this. And I have a feeling my listeners are going to want to find out more information, uh, maybe listen to some of the videos that you have given. I believe you've spoken at TEDx, for example. So where can my listeners find out more about you and Alaria, along with more of your research? So there are a few things that they can do. I mean, there are the three websites for the three entities.
1: Uh, one of them is aleria.tech, T-E-C-H, then there is aleriaresearch.org, which is the nonprofit, and then QSDI, spelled Q-S-D-I.org, so that's Quantitative Studies of the City and Inclusion. Another thing that I would recommend is that we have a newsletter that we send out on a weekly basis. Uh, I have a couple of colleagues that do some spectacular work with it, and it's really, really high-value content. And if you go to aleria.tech slash newsletter, or just look for the link from that website, that's a great way to get involved with the community. We have more than a 1,000 people now that read that newsletter, and they get involved with – we talk about events and other things like that. And then finally, I'm also very fortunate that I've been invited to – two years ago, I was invited to become a contributor for Forbes, talking about diversity and inclusion. And if you go to Forbes.com and you look up my last name, you know, Gaudiano, which I realize is not very easy to stop for most people, but – G A U D I A N O, then you'll find I, I like to write a lot of articles that really call into question some of the conventional wisdom about uh, diversity and inclusion and really try to focus on the human centric aspect and on the practical
0: value. Well, my guest again today has been Paolo Gaudiano. He's the CEO of ARC, Alaria Research Corporation, and as a speaker, writer, and teacher. Alaria Research Corporation is a nonprofit that conducts a scientific and charitable research related to diversity and inclusion. Paolo, it's so good to have you on the show today. Thanks for taking time to call in from New York today.
1: Thank you, Rob. It's been a real pleasure. I really appreciate you inviting me to be on there. And I uh, invite all of your listeners that want to reach out and talk to me. They're more than welcome to do so.
0: You can also go online to listen to this podcast, either nonprofitleadershippodcast.org or my website, robharder.com. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep making your world better.